Hello, Jack. Hello, Andy. How are you? Very well. What, Very well. What have you been up to? Loads, I know. I have seen a lot of shows this week. Right. Um, I saw the Wardrobe Ensembles uh, Southwestern. Yeah. At the Tobacco Factory. Very good. Very funny. Um, and then I saw Session, uh, which was a dance piece choreographed by Dan Canham with the most fantastic group of uh, young dancers, steppers, uh, performing arts academy and the, these amazing musicians where was that it was outside at the station wow it rained a little bit in the middle but it just made it more epic but the rain did not throw them off no and then i saw another show in the rain right. it, was the, it was the first day of rain we've had in a long time and it was outdoor theater day and it was outdoor theater day i saw romeo and juliet ah. um and it rained a bit there was a moment that I looked around and they looked like they were about to cancel it, but they didn't. And it right. got to the end and it just, it was, it was well, Knowing them as I do, they would they would not cancel just for a bit of rain. These are hardy, professional performers. And you can actually listen to our interview with them in episode one. Hey, nicely done. <laughs> yes, so that was Romeo and Juliet at Eastfield Park, yes. which is finished now, It sadly. is over, yeah. As has Southwestern. Yes. But that will have another life, presumably. Yeah. Yes, I hope so. Yeah. Uh, what have you been up to, Andy? What have I been up to? Well, Jack, uh, just this morning, in fact, I was back in the studio on Fortnite uh, Shorts and Movies, which I mentioned uh, last time we spoke. Um, so that was fun. I did some new characters, a character called Mysterio Funk. Can you do us a bit of No, voice? I can't because of copyright <sighs> issues. But also, you know, link available in the description <laughs> below if you want to know more about my other life. Um, and I stayed in quite a lot this weekend, actually. And I watched Paddington 2. Oh, yeah? Which is great. As good as Paddington 1? Better than Paddington 1. It's a, it's a triumph. And it's really very, very funny. But it is a little bit... It's sort of almost made for actors. Because the main villain is an actor, played by Hugh Grant. And there's a lot of actorly jokes in it. Which meant it, I loved it. It appealed to your <laughs> yeah. acty side. It was great. It was fantastic. Um, what have you got coming up this week? Um, I am doing a couple of gigs with Clumsy, like I mentioned before, um, and then getting ready to go to London. Right. Um, ready to hit the National Theatre. Yeah. The Star Seekers. Yeah. You're such a big shot. <laughs> I'm rehearsing with Close Reach Day. Oh. Ahead of our show at, what a great segue, at the Bristol Improv Theatre on the 17th of August, I believe. Which leads me nicely to say that here you are. Thank you for listening to Bristol Prologue, episode three. And this week, we are joined by Caitlin Campbell, who is an improviser, actor and compere, a member of Degrees of Errors Company and show Murder She Didn't Write, and co-founder of the Bristol Improv Theatre. Hello, Caitlin. Hello. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Not at all. Thanks for joining us here on this slightly cooler uh, morning weather update. The heatwave <laughs> has broken briefly um so caitlin thanks for coming in to talk to us um many of our listeners familiar with improv will know who you are you're sort of a staple of the bristol improv scene um but also there might be a few people who are thinking caitlin campbell i don't know anything about her well i can tell you from my research um which we conducted in the kitchen that you studied classics at bristol uni um and it's there where you first discovered improv 
That's right. So what was it? What was it that made you think, hey, I'm going to give this a go? So I, I had done drama A-level, as so many of us have, and, and classical studies A-level. And um, I, at one point, had wanted to go to drama school and been largely, roundly discouraged by everyone. Right. I know. <laughs> Which, looking back, um, it's strange because I'm quite single-minded, so I probably... There is a world in which I just would have done it. Um, but at the time, uh, I also was falling out of love with drama because of drama A-level. Right. And I hadn't enjoyed any of the scripted work we'd done and I hadn't enjoyed the direction. And um, the play that we'd done for our final piece was called The House of Bernarda Alba. Oh, yeah. And it's a yeah Spanish romantic yeah. translated. And yeah. Oh, oh. Was it heavy? Very heavy. We all fell in love with the same man. My character killed herself at the end, had to punch my best friend in the face. And not in a fun way, <laughs> in a really down way. And um, I just, I had found the whole process really uninspiring mm. doing drama A-level because what we were learning about was uh, casting and generally being told that there were very certain characters that we could and, and couldn't play. Right. And for me, thinking that that was what drama would be about and the ideas of that feeling of cliques that you get mm. and of it being very much about your appearance just felt sort of limiting and I kind of fell out of love with it at the same age that I decided that I was a realist and only very few people go on to be <laughs> Kate Winslet or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I took classical studies at university purely because it was just the thing that I enjoyed doing most at school. And I refused to do anything that would lead directly to a career because <laughs> I had no idea what I wanted to do right. as a job, which at the school I went to was really really weird and, and frowned upon. What, what school was that? It was a, a super selective girls' grammar school in Orpington, Kent. Right, OK. Which I can, though. Um, <laughs> no, that's, that's fine. I'm sure people can do their homework yeah. and figure out which school oh, that is. Oh, there's, like, loads of grammar schools in Kent. Right, right. I grew up in south-east London and okay. used to get the train out. It was a good school, um, but I was a bit of an anomaly in some ways because I was quite academic. I was very motivated. I really enjoyed learning. Um, but I didn't know what I wanted to do as a job. And so I was just continually sent to careers advisors and meetings and senior leadership for someone to just kind of figure me out and just right. get me sorted for the love of God uh, and, and, and sort of constantly refused to pretend I had a plan. So when you got to university then after this... Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> no, no, <laughs> after the experience you had at Drama A-Level, yeah. had you? what was your feeling about performing... Of any kind. I just wanted to have a good time. Right. I was just, I didn't want to do sad plays. Right. And I wanted to enjoy myself and I wanted to be able to do what I wanted to do. Yeah. This kind of headstrong 18-year-old. I want, And improv appealed to me because you can cast yourself. You yeah. can walk into a scene and be a gangster or be an assassin or be, you know, a... a Anything. Anything. You can be a tree. Yeah. Right? Uh, and well, I knew that I wanted to do drama. I knew that I wanted to do comedy. I knew I wanted to perform. And uh, at the Freshers' Fair, I'd kind of wandered around the stalls and the sketch writing society seemed quite intimidating. All of the drama society seemed terrifying, just <laughs> full of people who did not need my time. Yeah. And then the improv society were just friendly, fun, told me a bit about of it. I'd never heard of it as a thing. Yeah. But they said, oh, if you did drama A-level, do you remember all the warm-up games and stuff that you play where you just get to muck around? That's the whole thing. <laughs> and I was like, sign me up. So that was, that was how it So started. right at the beginning of university then you, you yeah. were... So what was your first improv Ooh. experience? Uh, I remember really clearly... I have a terrible sense of direction, so I'd got lost on the way to Students' Union. I paid for membership 
on the first day on Freshers' Fair, but I didn't go for two months because I was too busy having fun and getting drunk. <laughs> and I finally was like, the sheen has worn off Freshers. I should go and, like, do something with my time. I went down there and I arrived 20 minutes late, opened the door and all these heads kind of went... And there was this pause and then someone went, a girl! <laughs> because then it was the, yeah, really male-dominated society. Mm. So I think there are about 40 people at that first workshop I went to and there are about three women in there and the first uh, game that we played was a space training exercise where you walk into a room and you put an object in there and then you leave and the second person has to go in and interact with your object and add another object and I was like this isn't funny yeah but uh, <laughs> it's great exercise so was it sort of um straight away learning or were, you know were you kind of thrown into a training environment you know were you just how, how did you feel about that because you'd said previously you know you wanted to perform wanted to do comedy wanted to have fun wanted to play characters yeah and then straight away it's it now was, we're going to do exercises mm, well yeah it was so it was a student society that was led by the students and it still is so people who've been doing it for a couple of years would teach workshops to everyone the newbies and it was pretty informal so depending on who was taking the workshop that week it would either be like a piss about or it would be quite structured and and taken quite seriously but it was I mean, totally in the best possible way, just like the blind leading the blind. Right. <laughs> and so I teach improv now and we have a syllabus and we go into quite a lot of depth about how to sort of ease beginners in and, and make that feel safe and supportive. And uh, it definitely wasn't that. <laughs> right. Not because anyone didn't want it to be, because I don't know how much thought had gone yeah, into course, that. Yeah, of makes course, of course. So every time I did get on stage, I was usually like kind of shaking with fear right. and put all this pressure on myself for the, the thing that I said to be the funniest and the best thing that anyone in the room had ever heard right, right. Uh, and obviously you learn however long down the line that that's totally not what improv is about at what, all. what were your first performing experiences like then at, at uni <sighs> oh well there was a fortnightly show which still exists to this day and, and is now at the bristol improv theater it used to be called hilarity and it was a fort- that was at the cotton hill was it yeah yeah yeah, yeah i remember hill. i remember hence yeah. the name hill arity yeah. yeah um and yeah, my first show was there and it was a short form show uh, where we all just did a bunch of games and there was some stand up and I got really nervous at one point and fell over my words and went, sorry, it's my first show. And then right. I got a really big round of applause, which kind of gives you an idea of how friendly yeah. <laughs> a night it was. So for the benefit of, if I feel Jack's brain ticking over, yeah. for the benefit of listeners who aren't familiar with uh, improv parlance, mm. what is short form improv? Short form is a game based humor so um scenes that have a very specific gimmick Uh so it might be that the audience has given someone something to make the other person guess Uh or the audience has asked one person to speak in a certain way uh it's the kind of thing you see whose line is it anyway yeah yeah okay so so how how much fun did you have doing short (laughs) form loads of fun (laughs) it's like it's a great way to cut your teeth yeah improv what were the big learning points then for you doing short form What, what did you take away from those early years of, of performing? Good question. It's Thank, a blur. I've got, thanks. I've got, hopefully I've got some more. <laughs> <laughs> um, generally, the and this is a, a lesson I learned then, but of continued learning, you know, you learn the same lesson over and over and over yeah, again yeah. if it's the right one, yeah. um, that it goes as well as you, as you look like it's going. And the audience obviously like want to laugh and have a great time, but mostly they just want to feel safe. Mm. And I've seen and been in some short form shows where you're not getting the laughs that you want. And so everybody just starts looking a bit mm. freaked out. This was, you know, proper student improv comedy. Um, and after seeing 
uh, short form done at a, like a really high standard, like a high professional standard, I realised, I was like, it's not like the jokes are that much better, although mm. sometimes they are. It's just that they're not worried. And the less energy you use up on fear and apologising for being there, the more energy you can just put into enjoying being there and committing to whatever you're doing. Mm. Yeah, that rings very true. Mm. I should say Jack and I are sort of insiders on improv, so I guess... That you sounds mean sort, of. sort of, yeah. <laughs> For the benefit of the listeners, should I explain what we do? Well, I think if you didn't now, it would be a huge letdown. So, yeah. So, <laughs> um, me and Andy are in a show called Closer Each Day, which is a, a long form show, uh, which is kind of the other side of improv, um, where you're telling a story over um, the length of a of an episode yeah. or I'm afraid some people would disagree with you. Well. Oh, well, I'll let the actual expert explain it properly. <laughs> but me and Andy are involved in uh, that show, which is an ongoing soap opera. So there are many definitions of what makes a long form. Yeah. Um, let's, qu- let's very quickly then have the improv Oxford dictionary <laughs> definition of, of, of what makes a long form. Oxford uh, would... Anyway. Well, they have so, a different point of view, probably, yes. right? Oxford, mostly the people I know from Oxford do short form. Anyway, um, so long form is anything that is linked over the period of the whole show, be it half an hour or an hour. So there are some long forms, like uh, particularly American-style forms like the Herald and stuff like that, that define themselves as thematic long form. So the scenes will not take a narrative order, but they will be contributing to the same idea or building a picture around the same idea and then you have narrative long form which is also what i do which is you tell a story in an hour-long show okay so mm. there's a there is a difference between thematic long form and narrative long form yes see it's, there's so much more to it than you realize <laughs> to, to be honest it's it's the rabbit warren and and and, yeah, and everybody yeah. has different definitions there is no unified thing i i just call what we did long form until someone came along and was like, no, actually, you're doing narrative. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow. Yeah, that happens all the time. Tomato, isn't it? tomato. So yeah. this, did this experience then sort of rekindle your, your feelings about performing? Yeah. 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 But did you at any point think, maybe there is a career in this, maybe there's drama school or something Do after you know, all? No. It was actually... And when I was that age, it kind of turned me the other way, that I was like, see, this is why I could never have been an actor. Right. This is why I could never have, have, have gone back to sort of um, uh, re- reading from a script and, and, and doing something where all the rules had already been set at the outset. Uh, and now I don't feel that way. Right. But it was a kind of like, for a few years, I was like, I'm not an actor, I'm an improviser. Yeah, yeah, okay. Then I got over myself. <laughs> so do you think it's important to see a distinction between the two? or No, no. because I think good actors are good improvisers yeah, and good yeah. improvisers are good actors and the, the same like heart is behind all of it. But um, for me, it felt like quite an empowering distinction because it got me away from the part of drama that I hadn't enjoyed. Mm. Yeah, interesting. So... Let's look beyond university. You obviously made a lot of very strong contacts there and people that you continued to work with. Mm. What were your first steps beyond uni into continuing improv and then, I guess, professionalisation yeah. of, of your, of your yeah. performance? So there was crossfade, obviously. Um, I, when I was at university, there was, I remember the first time I spotted a group who were flyering for their improv show after our 
student improv show and I picked up and I saw some people from the student society and some people I didn't recognize and it was called only humor and I was like oh, hang on <laughs> there's an improv group that you can't just be in yeah I want to be in it <laughs> right, yeah. and started coming to their shows they did a weekly show it was long form narrative um uh and got to know all of them and you know really just fangirled pretty hard uh got asked to do their tech for their Edinburgh run so did their lighting and kind of got my foot in the door and then in the student society, we did a long-form narrative show that was an improvised film noir in my second year. And off the back of our performances in that, I got asked to be in the group, which then changed its name to Degrees of Error, and then we devised Murder, She Didn't Write in my final year of university. So who were those people that you were devising that with in so the So at the days? time, it was uh, Dan Titmus, who had been in Bristol Improv Sock, who was the president, uh, Imogen Palmer, uh, Andrew Yeo, who I work, uh, who's one of the other founders of the theatre, Steve Clements, who's one of the other founders of the theatre, and Lizzie Skipiak. I'm really scared I've forgotten someone. Well, don't worry, because what <laughs> we've we had can a do is we can, but that was we'll it. get you to record that, but we'll use a totally different microphone in a different room. Okay. So <laughs> you'll say it later on, it'll clearly sound like we've just, we've just slotted yeah. it in. <laughs> With um, Andrew Yeo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Imogen Farmer. So, it was, as you say, there was a sort of crossfade then. Yeah. So, was there a crunch time when you graduated where you thought, I'm going to go and move to elsewhere and do something different, or did it just sort of, you know, how did it, did it flow? Was it a logical thing to do? It... it by the time I was halfway through my third year, I'd completely checked out of my degree. Right. <laughs> I was just so done. That sounds very familiar. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I just I just needed to get it get it over with. Mm. And I had already spoken to Andy, who at the time was the sort of artistic director, not that we had a name for it, but he was our director in Degrees mm. of Error. And he had said, uh, at some point, I want to start an improv theatre. And I'd been kind of searching for, like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do next? I went, yeah, I'll do that. Yeah. So when was this? What year was this? My third year. So it would have been 2014. Wow, okay. Mm. This all happened very quickly then, hasn't it? Oh, yeah. I'm so young. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, we'll we'll talk um, a lot more about um, Degrees of Error and Murder She Didn't Write um, later on in the show. Um, In part two, we'll discuss the Bristol Improv Theatre's origins and its birth and the many, many challenges associated with that. And we'll talk more to Caitlin Campbell about her approach to improv after this little break. Hello there, and thank you for listening to Bristol Prologue. Bristol Prologue is a brand new podcast, and Jack and I are still learning the ropes. So we'd like your feedback. Please email us at bristolprologue at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at Bristol Prologue. Okay, welcome back to Bristol Prologue. Uh, Thanks for the tea, Jack. You're very welcome. It's just sitting in front of me, cooling nicely. Uh, we're joined by Caitlin Campbell, who, of course, we were chatting to in part one of episode three of Bristol. It's all getting very exciting, isn't it? It's all turning into a bit sort of proper radio type thing. <laughs> I just need to go back and loosen it all up a little bit. Anyway, yes, we're joined by Caitlin Campbell. And just before we left, we were talking about the origins of the Bristol Improv Theatre. Right. Where do we begin? Mm. So you said that Andy had said while you were at uni, Andy Yeo had said, one day I want to have an improv theatre. Mm-hmm. And you said, yeah, OK, I'll do that. How did that actually happen? happen? Uh, but more interestingly, you know, what, were the, what were the challenges <laughs> and what, you know, where, where were the great problems that must come into play <laughs> when you're trying to set up something wonderful, you know? Yeah. It's never easy, right? So what, no. what was it like? Well, it was, it was gradual. It was, in hindsight, it's easy to see how everything contributed to what it finally became and 
where it's by no means a finished product now, so what it is still becoming. But first of all, Andy ran a festival, the Bristol Improv Festival, with the help of a number of brilliant sort of volunteers. But Andy has always been this kind of force of nature type person who makes things happen. Uh, in 2013 and off the back of that people asked for improv classes and Andy started offering them those and then we ran another festival in 2014 and off the back of that we we found a venue a permanent venue because we we'd sort of been operating as what we'd called ourselves the Bristol Improv Network so once a year it's the Bristol Improv Festival and once a year and then around the year it was the Bristol Improv Network and we would look for other places to put on shows sort of put improv companies in touch with each other advertise our classes and then if other improv companies came and did gigs in Bristol then we would promote them to the kind of emerging community uh, and then we were looking for a place to put on our Edinburgh fringe previews because at this time degrees of error and the Bristol Improv Theatre was almost inseparable in that Andy was sort of directing both of them and, mm. and I was I was also there very interested <laughs> and um, uh, we came across the Polish Ex Servicemen's Club which was this um, amazing terrace building no semi detached building with a huge dugout cellar with a licensed bar and a hundred seat theatre and no one in them. It was so quiet. It had but a huge live music venue. And in the last 10 years, it got so quiet that no, it was hardly being used. And the uh, manager was sort of past retirement age and had stopped running events there and was really just sort of waiting till he could retire and take his caravan to Dorset, which mm. was his plan. And so we turned up and said, oh, could we, could we run some shows here? And he said, yes. And then we said, could we just sort of have a regular every Friday night? And he said, yeah. <laughs> Can we put up a banner outside that just sort of says that it's the Bristol Improv Theatre? He said, yes. <laughs> and then we said, can we just put it on Google Maps as the Bristol Improv Theatre? And he said, I don't know what that is. <laughs> so we did. Uh, and just slowly over about two years, it became our home. And um, Bish, who was the manager, let us go in and use one of the upstairs rooms as an office and we were always doing stuff there and getting extra days and we started rehearsing there. And then after a little while, the Polish um, uh, society told us that they were planning to sell the building. And if we could find a way of running it ourselves, they would rather it stayed a community building. Yeah, and then that's yeah. what eventually happened. So yeah. we took over ownership in 2017. Wow. So it sounds like a, a snowball effect of like yeah. one thing leading to another. But also you mentioned there about how people had... There was almost a demand for some kind of centralised yeah. home. Um, and I guess a bit of luck, a succession of yeses in that story. So that the theatre comes about, and as we said, there's this demand for it. But I think what some people, even in the theatre community, would be surprised about mm. is that you can run and sustain a building dedicated to, Jack put it mm. beautifully, before we started talking actually, to a, to a sort of sub-genre of live performance. Yeah. So what's the secret, you know? Is it really just that there's that much improv out there? You know, how is, how is it still... How is it triumphing in the way that it is? I think the thing that sets it apart, that means it isn't working on exactly the same model as other theatres, is the classes. The theatre school and teaching improv is a huge part of what sustains us, uh -huh. not just financially, but in terms of creating people who are later going to be in the shows and people who are later going to volunteer for the box office or even just help us build the place because there are about 
50 volunteers that helped us refurbish the entire building over two months and it was the most huge scale awe-inspiring humbling kind of project that all these people turned up and the vast majority of them had taken a class with us and I think that's because people don't just take improv because they want to be on stage people take improv classes to build their confidence to help them often with anxiety and stuff like that is is what we get feedback a lot from our classes people see it as a life skill for things like public speaking or doing presentations at work or just to meet new people or improve English it's I think it's seen as a bit less scary than kind of saying I want to do theatre and mm. be an actor mm. doing an improv class is just a bit of a laugh mm. and that is we're, bit, we're riding a bit of a wave of an interest in improv in the UK and we're in such a good place to do it in Bristol because Bristol's just full of people who love doing things. Yeah, yeah. In London, there are several brilliant improv theatres and several brilliant organisations offering classes and doing stuff. The reason we sort of almost got a bit of a head start is because it's easier to make things happen in Bristol with the scale of things. And we were literally just the first people to start doing it and making it happen and rode this incredible wave of goodwill and love for improv but it's i suppose there is that simultaneous appeal in in the classes of uh actors who want to add a string to their bow and also people who are just interested in the thing of improv and as you say then also people who are using it as a tool Mm. for other parts of their lives so and it does it does have that feeling of being very inclusive doesn't it absolutely so um so your role at the officially your role at the bristol Mm -hmm. improv theater is programs director yes so for the um uh, what am I trying to say? Uninitiated amongst us, <laughs> what does that what does that involve day to day? Day to day, I program the classes and the shows, and I manage our external hire and uh, our marketing. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> simple. Simple. And is that uh, what's what is that like? What does that sort of bring you in? You you dealing with everybody all the yeah. time, every day. It's the best. It's the best job at the theatre. I mean, we're we're <laughs> such. A, I I think yeah. it was such a small team at the moment. Um, not as small as it was. You mentioned earlier, like what what are the challenges of of running this thing? Because it happened so quickly. Like me and Andy and Steve, the founders, occasionally go. Oh, I think we might be ready to open an improv theatre. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like when you learn another lesson and you're like, oh shit, wish we'd named that. Yeah, yeah. Two years ago. Um, uh, I guess a question I have is almost about the finances, that financial pressure. And you said you're reliant on volunteers. Mm. You know, that, so for anyone listening who thinks I've got a dream about opening a theatre, like well, how, what mm. are the means of getting funding and sort of sustaining a business yeah. in that early part? We were really lucky. We got a large amount of private investment from family members and yeah, friends. Okay. Yeah. Um, we had a fundraiser that raised about £27,000 from crowdfunding. And that was from people locally who've taken our classes and know us, but also from people donating from all over the world, uh, improv theatres and other people who do improv in Europe and as far abroad as the US and, and, and Australia. So the, the community heard the call. Hell yeah. Yeah, well, there the were rebellion lot- is alive. <laughs> there were people in the US who were just like, hang on, the UK doesn't have an improv theatre yet? Because that's that's what we were selling as. It was the UK's first dedicated improv theatre. Because there are lots of there are spaces in London where improv goes on, but at the time that we were opening a year and a half ago, there was no space that was owned and run by by improvisers. Right. Okay. So that was the kind of call to arms, which is the first dedicated improv theatre space yeah. in the UK, and it it was amazing the movement behind it. 
Um, but financially, it's a balancing act always. Mm. I mean, like anything, the theatre, the shows aren't necessarily the things that make money. Although, mm. unlike some theatres, the shows don't lose money. Mm. But then the bar hiring out the space occasionally for like private parties, mm. rehearsals, stuff like that. And we're really lucky that we have two flats. So you've got a good diversification yeah. going on there, turning the... into an economics podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so And the theatre school, obviously. Exactly, yeah. So there's a lot going on and it's been a real success and I'm just so thrilled that we've got this other great space where this, you know, really exciting part of, of performance can happen. So let's talk a bit more about now you as a as a performer. Um, so you're on stage. What are the bits, what are the moments that really excite you the most where you're just, you know, thank God I'm doing this? Mm, with improv, it's, it's, it's the walking the line between the, the two shows. So we sometimes have this saying of the second show. When you're watching an improv show, you're watching the, the characters and the story and, and what's being created, but you're also watching... A group of people and you know that they're making up on the spot uh-huh. and so the second show peeps through every now and then with just like a moment of enjoyment or panic in someone's <laughs> eyes or just someone throwing out an offer that makes someone go wait what and I love the the way those two correspond and that sense of anarchy can be really exciting yeah you just said a, a phrase for the jargon thing which is an offer could you elaborate on that Uh, so an offer can be anything in a scene but it's um it's really a way of thinking that when you are in a scene everything that you do is an offer to the scene so it could be something big like me saying have you worked in this cafe for a long time that is an offer we now know that you work in this cafe and i'm in it and i'm talking to you for example but an offer could be as small as just like a a shrug and uh, a scene is about reading each other's offers and accepting each other's offers. It's about saying yes to what you're given. So if I say, oh, if you worked in this cafe long, you would be blocking my offer. If you were like, I don't work in a cafe, we're outdoors, for yeah. example. Yeah. Uh, but then it, it can be as tiny as if I shrug and you say, hey, you know, what's wrong? You don't know? Yeah, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, perfectly, yeah. perfectly. So th- that's the thing that you sort of tap into is that great enjoyment that balancing act that fine line mm. um what about some of the characters that you play that you've created have you been surprised by where you found enjoyment or where you found less enjoyment in certain in certain creations um i can't play old people right <laughs> don't know why can't can't do it um i think it depends on the show uh-huh. so in murder she didn't write you create a character at the outset depending on the um, suggestions that you're given by the audience, the the setting that you know that you're in, the other characters that have come up and what your relationship to them might be. And then you stick with that character for the entire show. And in that, in that setting, you want to find something that feels comfortable without feeling safe. Uh-huh. And I think you can sometimes see improv shows when companies have been doing them for a really, really, really long time the danger with that show is that watching it is like getting into a lukewarm bath with mm. a warm cup of cocoa. And the the thing that you need to do is show like murder that we've now been doing for six years is keeping it exciting and keeping making choices. And so my favourite kind of um, characters to play are your kind of slightly neurotic yeah. people who just want everyone to get on. That's kind of my favourite, like kind at heart. Yeah. I, I prefer playing people who are kind to playing people who are unpleasant so or do don't think, want the best. Do you think you've learned something about yourself? 
through that then? Is there any sort of revelations? <laughs> uh, nothing that wasn't kind of obvious. Right, okay, but, okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. Um, so we'll talk about uh, Degrees of Error and Merged in Right a lot more in our next part. But firstly, here's the moment you've all been waiting for. It's the quick fire question <laughs> thing, which maybe we'll do a jingle for at some point. Mm, that's a good idea. So you, you, you've got to choose one of these, okay. I'm afraid. No eithers, no boaths, no, um, no, no neither. Um, so short form or long form? Long form. Well, that was decisive, wasn't it? Crikey, hesitation. Um, touring or playing to a home crowd? Playing to a home crowd. Okay. Uh, doing the whole of the Bristol Improv Marathon or the whole of the Edinburgh Fringe? They get harder. A uh, whole of the Bristol Improv Marathon. Ooh, we can talk about that a little bit about perhaps yeah. later as well. High status or low status characters? Low status. Uh, silly costume or silly wig? Silly costume. <laughs> Busted or McFly? I just don't care. Well, I mean, but... <laughs> okay. Well, uh, busted, because have... they were there first. Right. Uh, true, yeah. And uh, big night out or cosy night in? Aww. Cozy night in. Cozy night in. Yeah, I did sort of become a bit Bristolian there, didn't I? <laughs> um, okay, that's the end of the quickfire questions. Anything else we need to talk about, or we should talk about, or we want to talk about in this um, interlude? No, but we should talk about status. Yeah, I was going to say, because, yeah. you want to talk okay. about technical terms. We've opened up a, a, a Pandora's box there. Mm. So, yeah, Jack, have you got a question? Uh, I want to ask, why does status matter? Uh, for characters and improvisation. Mm, interesting. Stasis is a kind of, well, it's a, a way of describing and a tool to use in establishing characters, how they interact with one another. So a character who is high status will have a lot of control and a lot of authority in a space. A character who's low status won't. So a high status character might be a very demanding customer or the CEO of an organisation or God. And a low status character might be you know, um, a child who's being ignored or a put-upon sales clerk or a pet, for example. Um, and brilliant comedy can come out of status shifts. So a moment where someone who's always been put upon finally sticks up for themselves or when someone who is constantly in control loses control. So it's great drama, but it's also great comedy. So like um, Bottom or Blackadder. Those are mm. co comedies <laughs> that I always send my character classes to watch because they are all about status shifts yeah, yeah. or status relations. And what Why is do, important? Uh, how does that have an impact on like the narratives that end up like, coming out? Interesting. I think um, status status is a big contributor to making things matter. When you watch stories on stage, you want to watch stories that mean something to someone. And status is, is very much about who, who's in charge, who's in control and, and how you feel about what's happening. And you want to see characters who are playing with high stakes and want something from life. And so status can be a great factor in that. So with stories, they can be all about someone changing their status, either rags to riches or just overcoming a personal hardship or just coming to terms with something that they need to deal with. Like you can see someone go up in status in a scene just when they accept that something is has changed and is not going to come back and, and move on. Like that's a status shift personal status shift mm. i'd never thought about it in those terms before now i'm going to be watching everything and looking <laughs> for the status yeah, shifts. shifts i think when you're teaching it on one level it's like who's the boss and who's the employee yeah. but then when, when you're using it at a 
like a more complex level, I think it's an exciting way to think about how the characters interact and what they want from one another and see the possibility for a status shift in someone. Like, do we, do we want to see that person being ta- taken down a peg or two? Yeah. Who do yeah. we want to succeed? Who do yeah. we want to win? Ah, fascinating. Fascinating. Great. Okay, well, we'll talk more with Kate and Campbell and discuss the phenomenon that is murder she didn't write after this little break. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to this latest episode of Bristol Prologue. You can find all of our previous episodes and information about upcoming shows via our website, bristolprologue.com. Okay, welcome back. Um, we were joined by Caitlin Campbell, Jack and I, here in uh, Claremont, Claremont Studios. Yes. Is that what we're calling it? We've called it that twice now, so yeah, it's, it's real. It's become a thing. Yeah. Hey, guys, you ever work at Claremont Studios? <laughs> How cool are those cats? Yeah. F- uh, text in to tell us. We don't have a text. Email us, tell us how cool we are. Or tweet us. Not very, with increasing, decreasing amounts of coolness as I keep talking. (laughs) So I'll stop talking. Um, Just before the break, we briefly mentioned the Bristol Improv Marathon. It was in our quick fire. In our quick fire round. Caitlin, what is the Bristol Improv Marathon? I'm glad you are. (laughs) Oh, good. The Bristol Improv Marathon is a 26-hour continuous overnight improv extravaganza that's been made up created in association with Close Reach Day Company mm-hmm. and the Bristol Improv Theatre uh, with a huge cast of 30 characters and musicians uh, that we do every year for fun. <laughs> for fun. For masochistic fun. Everybody run... goes through the whole night. It smells terrible. Yeah. It is hilarious. Large amounts of crisps are confused. Yeah. Lots of coffee and oranges and tea. I yeah. described it like binging on a box set. Yeah, like yeah. With all at once, with your eyes pinned open. Yeah, yeah. so it runs from eight pm on the fr- typically on from eight pm on a Friday night to ten pm on a Saturday night. Saturday night, yeah. We're all veterans in this room of various marathons in various. I've actually guises. only done one, but, but you have yeah. done the door for one, which I imagine is the and hardest the door for two. Well, so I mean, it's amazing that you're able Even to go outside today. and sort of <laughs> stand upright and things. It's Reintegrate a, into the world. It's a proper ordeal and we can expect it around February, March, March time yeah. in 2019. 2019. Good Lord. <laughs> so yes, that's the Bristol Improv Marathon for those fortunate enough to have avoided it so far. I'm joking, of course. It is amazing fun to be in, to watch, to, to be a part of mm. in any way. And featuring in the Bristol Improv Marathon are often many members of Degrees of Error, whose flagship show, Murder She Didn't Write, is once again returning to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival this year for its fifth year? Sixth year? Sixth. Sixth year. And this year you're at Pleasance? Yes, the courtyard. Great. So for those who haven't ever seen the show... Give us a summation of what to expect when you book your tickets and go and see Murder, She Didn't Write. So Murder, She Didn't Write is an improvised murder mystery and it's basically like live action Cluedo. So the audience suggest why the suspects have all gathered together and they give us an object that's very important in the case and from that we improvise an hour-long murder mystery with a huge dose of farce and silliness and fun mystery surprise um some very suspect characters and some lovely color coordinated outfits so you mentioned did you say cluedo there when you started off with your like live action the, cluedo. yeah so yeah. what what kind of characters can we expect then ah so well we all have a color or several colors because we change night to night um but you know your staples obviously there's a miss scarlet there's usually a miss gold a lady violet mr green lord blue right 
It varies. And um, what sort of age would we recommend for the audience for a, for a so typical show? So we sort of say 12 slash 14 plus. Obviously yeah. it's improvised, so we can adapt it to the audience, but we're, we're in a slightly larger room this year, so it's starting to get harder to spot small faces right. in the audience. Um, we sort of say that it's not dirty, but it can be saucy. Okay, yeah, saucy. And you have a late night version as well? We Yes, we're doing that again this year. And what's the, what's the difference there then? Uh, so in the past, we've done a few shows in drag, which was really fun. Uh, this year, we're playing around with our format. So we're doing some mass murder she didn't write. So normally in the show, one person dies and there's one murderer. Um, and in mass murder she didn't write, we've got an hour to kill off the majority of the cast, right. which is really fun. <laughs> and yeah. you still have just the one detective? Yes. So what's the audience's role in, in collaboration then? Do they mm. decide the murderer? Do they decide the detective? How does it so work? There's one audience member decide... Well, so the audience can all shout out suggestions for why the suspect's gathered and what the object is. Uh, and then one audience member helps the detective solve the case by choosing who the the victim is going to be and choosing who the murderer is going to be from a deck of cards. Right. And they keep that a secret, obviously. Yeah. So where does the... Obviously, the fun comes from the audience. In the, in the, it's a comedy, and they're watching all these mm-hmm. outlandish characters. How, how many often? How often do the audience kind of get it right? You know, get it is, right. is there a vote at the end? Or it's it's. Oh, I don't know how much of the I should give away. Well, that's the balance. Um, <laughs> true. There is at the end. The audience can all point at who they think it is right, but they're not usually right because right. the everybody's job in the show is to make themselves look as guilty as possible. Right, okay. <laughs> Once you're on stage and you know who's died and you know who the murderer is, it's just your job to look like you could have done it. So, and then it's the detective's job to show that only one person actually did do it. So the detective has to really keep an eye on everything that's happening and kind yes. of make mental notes the they whole way through. They have a notebook. Yeah. They have a notebook. It's, a, it's an interesting, because I'm actually in another improvised mystery, which is an improvised Sherlock. And in that one, Sherlock is in the whole show. And at the end, the whole cast, although there's only three of us, sum up everything and, and, and work out the mystery together. So it's far more... Uh, doing it from the seat of your pants. In our show, everybody on stage's job is to to deal with the emotions and the drama and look guilty. And it's the detective's job to tie together all of these strings of little things that have been mentioned and dropped and, and put it to a resolution somehow. Tie it up in a beautiful bow. And does everyone have a go at being the detective throughout the run? Some of us prefer it. I think almost everyone has done it at least once. But um, I'm, a, I'm kind of a big believer that you should push yourself to do things that you're scared of, but also people shouldn't do things that make them miserable. Right. <laughs> so yep. uh, there are a few of us who really enjoy doing it. I'm one of the people who likes being the detective. Because I, I also love chatting to the audience at the start, getting everybody warmed up and getting on board with... Because there's quite a lot to get out at the start. This show is improvised. It's a murder mystery. Mm. It's going to be made up. This is your job. Now sit back and... You've got to kind of explain relax. how it works a little yeah, bit to get and, beyond that initial... Mm layer but then once it's up and running it works spectacularly well yeah what is the secret for the success of the show because Uh, you're playing at the leicester square theater now and you're kind of touring all over the country it's got this enduring appeal what do you put it down to i think a mix of things i mean first and foremost i think the the key to any improv show no one wants to go and see an improv show if you're not having a good time so the biggest thing is that people in degrees of error the company love doing the show mm. and enjoy it and that's a bit of an achievement after six years but then I don't really need to tell you guys <laughs> closer each day for longer yeah, yeah um so yeah first and foremost it's seeing a group of friends having a brilliant time 
then murder mystery is just such an accessible genre. Everybody mm. knows what that is. And I think the trick of the show, what makes it feel so satisfying and so accessible, is that it feels a bit like a magic trick. Someone pulls a card at the beginning, and then at the end of the show, everything ties together, and the card is revealed again to, to say, oh, and it was them all along. And it mostly makes sense. And in that heightened reality with these ridiculous characters yeah. and silly murder weapons yeah. and silly accents and yeah. things, it, is, it must feel very... Uh, something spectacular. It's like watching a, it's like watching a, a really camp farcical movie as well, isn't yeah. it? I guess at times. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. And so I think it's got all the elements of comedy and farce and then uh, genuine moments of pathos, That the thing that we were saying about status earlier. It's not just about... Uh, finding out who the murderer is. It's also finding about the char- how the characters are going to respond to this situation and this journey and what does the murder mean for them? What does it change for them? Do they Have they always been poor and now they have money? Oh. Or is it going to change their life drastically? So actually seeing windows into those characters and seeing transformation is what I think people really want to see in a good narrative show. So you've been doing it for, as you said, six years now at mm. Edinburgh. How have your audiences changed from wow. those early days to where you are now so the first year that we went to the fringe we booked a tiny venue on the outside outskirts of town that seated 60 people and we all slept in one room <laughs> and that's not an exaggeration <laughs> eight of us slept in one room with three other people Wow. Uh, and this year we are playing at the pleasance courtyard and beyond which is a 340 seat venue Wow. And what about the, the, the audiences, though? Because you get, do you get repeat people now that have been every year? Or yeah. Or you've got fans? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> what's, that, what's that like? It's own weird little village, isn't it? Um, there are some shows that we always go and see them every year and they come and see us. That's always lovely. Um, but, yeah, people mainly keep in touch over Twitter and I don't go on Twitter very often. Um, but, yeah, we always get tweets saying, book to see Degrees of Error, see them every year, can't wait to see what's happening and sometimes you get people coming up because we always fly around the mile we always fly in costume on the mile before the show and we have people coming up to us saying we take a photo with you every year we come and see the show every year it's got better every year we think you're brilliant and it's oh and it has definitely do you feel that it's improved year on year and 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 definitely so what what are the sort of key besides just obvious experience mm. you know, what are the key things that you've implemented over the years to get well, the, the show, show to where it is now the show changed a lot in the first three four years that we performed it I think it was a different show for the first so the first year the detective was actually in it and we didn't have a victim because no one wanted to not be in the best of part of the show yeah. so there's this very awkward opening where everybody would arrive for a party or event and then someone would go I'll just go and get Mr <laughs> X walks off stage and then goes ah he's dead and you you would never meet the victim and it is one of the things that I find so interesting about doing murder student right and having done it for so many years is that murder mystery is really not a very improv genre Mm -hmm. lots of the rules that we say for improv like show don't tell like take us there um you know don't really work with murder mystery because it is effectively one night where people talk about stuff that's been happening for years and so when we realised that, we changed the format to take the detective out because the detective was really just a device for people to talk about stuff that happened years ago and put the victim in and put all of that action into flashbacks with the victim. And then eventually we put the detective back in 
so that someone could solve the mystery. So you get the best of both worlds. So now the detective is more like a compare character. They introduce, they get the suggestions, and then they kind of, they are the zookeeper for the rest of what happens. All right, okay. And tie it together at the end. Yeah, so it's just that doing it so much, you learn so much, don't you, and realise what's working, what's not. Yeah, so, and it um, took years as well. Of course, yeah, <laughs> and it's, it will invariably, in five years' time, it will be different yeah. from how it is now. Mm-hmm. It will evolve. So here's a, here's a question. Um, how do you deal with, on a personal level, a bad show or a, a show where you felt you haven't, you haven't kind of got it right? It's interesting. I, I was actually thinking about this on the way, whether we'd talk about this, because when I started out doing improv, bad shows absolutely took it out of me. Mm. Like, I'd really be like, oh, why am I doing this? Is this... Awful, and there were some early murder gym rights that went badly, or where I didn't feel like I'd kind of contributed, um, that would just make me feel awful. And I think there's there can be an attitude, especially with new improvisers, that if you're not giving yourself a really hard time about a bad show, if you're not being very critical and like holding yourself to this incredibly high standard of every show being perfect, then you're not taking it seriously enough. But I think it's similar to when you see people who have a work ethic that if I'm not stressed and tired, that I'm not working hard enough. Mm. Real, really good improv, and I think good work, comes out of a sense of ease and being kind to yourself whilst being, um, what's the word, uh, constructive mm. uh, in, in how you build the show. And I definitely used to be a huge self-flagellator with bad shows. <laughs> right. Like, just just hate myself for saying a stupid thing or missing a cue. And would that be, like, first. in the show, you know, if you're experiencing that? Yeah. Or would it all would it come after? Both. Right. Bit of both. <laughs> yeah. Standing in the wings, just being like, oh, why is this happening? <laughs> and it's one of the uh, biggest lessons to learn is that it, it the audience aren't seeing what you're seeing for a start. And... They can't all be a perfect show. Mm. And giving yourself a horribly hard time doesn't make the show better. Mm. It's about the work that you put in, in rehearsals, in picking yourselves up, in being nice to each other, in getting back on stage the next day. Yeah. And looking after each other. And that's so important in an improv company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let it happen, move on, forget about it and get on with the next And it's interesting because we have fewer bad shows now. I think it's interesting. There's something very dear to my heart about... Uh, those very early Edinburgh's that we did where shows could either be an absolute blinder and we'd all be like, that was magic, I can't believe we did that. And then some absolute stinkers where you're like, Jesus, that was terrible. (laughs) And we've, on a kind of one to five scale, I said, you know, we'd hit one and fives. Mm. And now it always feels like we are, a bad show for us is just one that feels like hard work Mm. rather than feeling easy and feeling Mm. a bit, you know like having fun yeah and i think it's now reached a point where you either get an audience go out going like that was brilliant or that was oh it's really good yeah and they don't necessarily know the difference between oh that was really good you want every show to be like oh that was brilliant but naturally in a month you're gonna get both and i think when you hear that audience feedback as well there's part of that thing we were just discussing where you're hearing it and taking it to heart mm. and and criticizing yourself mm. because it wasn't amazing. But actually, you only spoke to ten people yeah. out of three hundred and forty now because you've been getting more and more successful every year, filling bigger and bigger venues, and it's it's one of the hits of the fringe now, you know. And that's why you're getting these other tours. Sorry, I'm just I'm just basically just doing the Stop. plug for you now. But um, so you said how the actual content of the show has changed mm. over the last six years to to change in the actual format of mm. things. 
What about the approach to actually making the show and working on the show? Have mm. you adapted as a company? Yeah, so much of it is about keeping it fresh. And there's a, a sense of learning how to keep learning. You have to be aware that if you just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again, the show won't get better after mm. a certain point and it will start getting worse. And so we have regular rehearsals or, you know, sort of training sessions almost where we try and keep challenging ourselves. And so part of my role within the company is organising the rehearsals and either running them or getting someone to run them. And so whereas in the past it was a lot more about running the format and working out little bits and bobs and talking about the theory of how the format works, now that feels like it's sort of laid to rest and we found something that really works. Now it's keeping the energy and keeping the skills of everyone up and also keeping us in tune with one another as an ensemble mm. because we're quite a big group. I think there's about 10 of us now who rotate because everybody has other stuff that they, they do. Keeping everybody feeling connected to one another so you can walk on stage and have that instant trust and ready to go feeling is what we work on these days yeah and that shows i think that sense of and when you're out on the royal mile in the pouring rain <laughs> you better have that right when you're all yes. putting that putting that shift <laughs> oh in God. so just for the sort of um factual stuff what time what venue tickets all that stuff how do we, we how do we go about seeing it one at 5 p.m at pleasance beyond and you can get your tickets either through the fringe website or through the pleasance website and then touring after that? Are there any dates yeah. confirmed? Oh, we should look those we up. We can find those out. We can... Well, we are, we've got um, a residential slot at the Leicester Square Theatre on the uh, one Sunday a month at 4pm. So you can look that up on the Leicester Square, Th uh, Square Theatre website. Great. And then back to Bristol at some point, I'm sure. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, we've got some October gigs lined up at the Wardrobe Theatre, which should be a laugh. Awesome. Awesome. Great. Okay, Caitlin, well, there's so many things we could have talked about uh, that we didn't get into, other shows that you've worked on, um, other projects that might be coming up, but uh, we know where to look now. We know to, to check out the Bristol Improv Theatre. And, of course, if you're up at Edinburgh, you can catch Caitlin and the rest of Degrees of Error on the, on the Royal Mile or at Pleasance Courtyard, 5pm. At Beyond. At Ple Beyond, pretty much every day yeah. for the whole Fringe. Great. Well, thanks ever so much for joining us, Caitlin Campbell from Degrees of Error and the Bristol Improv Theatre. Thank you for having me. Bristol Prologue is produced and hosted by Jack Drury and Andrew Kingston. For all inquiries, please email bristolprologue at gmail.com. And if you'd like to feature on the podcast, please email us telling us a little bit about who you are and any projects you may have coming up. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Bristol Prologue.